Good morning, everybody. Man, it's so good to see you guys here on a Baptism Sunday. This is also week number one of a new series we're starting today called The Table. And what we're doing is we're, we're taking a look again at this vision that God's given us for our church, this vision he's called us to run after in our community. And so uh, for the next five weeks, we're gonna be talking through this series called The Table. Um, my two older boys are like complete and total opposites from each other. Right now, they're 18 and 17 years old. My oldest, Alan, is an introvert. And my next son, Andrew, is an extrovert, like an extreme extrovert. If you've met Andrew, you know he's an extrovert. He's already communicated that to you. Um, and so uh, when, when they were younger, when they were like seven or eight years old, I have this memory of one morning going downstairs in our house and realizing it was really quiet in the house. And so I, I look, and our son, Alan, the oldest one, who's an introvert, is sitting there in a chair reading a book. He's just reading a book very quietly by himself, like a good introvert. And so I said, hey, buddy, uh, where's Andrew? Where's your brother? And he looks up from the book, and he says, oh, he's hiding. <laughs> and he just goes back to reading the book. And so I said, okay, why is he hiding and again, he looks up in the book and he says, oh, because I told him we're playing hide and seek. <laughs> and then just kept reading, uh, which I guess this is the way you get a break from your emotionally needy brother uh, if you're an, an introvert. And so at that moment, I thought, okay, well, I'm the dad. I guess it's my job then to go find Andrew and to tell him the good news that he can come out of hiding. He doesn't have to hide anymore. Nobody's looking for him. And so I went to do that after I made myself a sandwich. Uh, <laughs> checked Facebook, took a nap. <laughs> no. uh, eventually, I went to find him. And what I remember about that moment is when I finally did find Andrew, not only was he hiding, but he was actually, while he was hiding, he was trying to figure out a way to get out on the roof of our house. We had this like, uh, you know, this like, this door that was kind of raised up that took you into the attic and out a dormer window so you could get on the roof. And when I found him, he had already pulled this like step stool over very quietly and he was trying to figure out how to get out on the roof because that would be an awesome hiding place from his brother. I have a feeling that would have ended poorly for him. And so the reason I tell you that story is because, to me, that is such a picture of what our world is like and what our vision is like as a, as a church. Uh, right now, there are people in our world who are in hiding. And what they're doing is they're seeking refuge from things that are not safe at all. They're seeking refuge from things like, that, like drugs, like alcohol, pornography, sex, uh, money, possessions. They're seeking refuge in those things that are not a true refuge. And they're doing that not because they're bad people. They're doing that because they just don't know the good news. And the good news is that there really is only one true refuge, and that's the person of Jesus. The cross is the only real refuge we have. And so we don't, the good news is we don't have to keep hiding and, and find, trying to find refuge in these things that don't satisfy because God has provided for us the ultimate refuge in Jesus and in, in life in him. And so from, from this place, looking at our world, we, and we've come for this um, vision statement as a church. And if you've been a part of Frontline for a while, you know it. But our vision statement is Frontline is not done until zero people live unchanged by Jesus. We're not done as a church until... Zero people have not been found yet and told the good news that Jesus is the true refuge of our lives. And so for us as a church, we kind of feel like this vision 
is bigger than anything we could actually accomplish in our own power, our own strength. If you're sitting there reading that going like, that's impossible. Yes, that's right. It kind of is impossible in our own power. We believe this is a vision that only God could do through his church, really seeking after him. That, that is only something God could accomplish through us. And so the, the place where this, uh, this vision comes from in scripture is one chapter of the Bible. It's Luke chapter 15. And I actually think we should never go a year in the life of Frontline without at some point, even if it's just one sermon, one place, looking at Luke chapter 15. It's so central to who we are as a church and the vision that God's given us that every year, I think at some point, we need to look at Luke 15 and talk about what he's given us as a church. So this is how Luke 15 begins. It starts out, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Stop. Just let that sentence sink in for a minute. Tax collectors, notorious sinners, wanted to come and listen to Jesus teach. There was something attractive about Jesus that they wanted to be around. There was something about what he was saying, the message he, he was speaking that, that somehow attracted them and they wanted to be around him. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So the tax collector, I'm sorry, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, this other group of people in the story, they are the religious elites of the day. The Pharisees, along with the Sadducees, they uh, oversaw, with the teachers of religious law, the religious system of the day and the temple and, and the sacrificial system. And so we talk about them a lot and, and we kind of know, okay, those were not good people, but oftentimes we don't actually know what they really believed. Because what's interesting is if you understand what the Pharisees and the teachers of law believed, you would actually say to yourself, oh, that actually, we, a lot of us believe that today. They actually believe stuff that we would say today, oh yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to us. What the Pharisees believed is that God would bless Israel only if every person in Israel would clean up their act, clean up their impurity and their sin and get right with God. That's what they believed. They believed God would bless Israel and that he would send the Messiah only when Israel, all of Israel just came together and stopped all their impurity and all their sin. So their basic message then to people was try harder. Try harder to be good. Try harder to be better, to do better, and to be a better person for God. That was their basic essential message. So you can kind of understand from the Pharisee standpoint, if you understand that, the, that for them, when they looked at tax collectors and they looked at notorious sinners who were just obviously living a life of sin, to, in their minds, these people are the problem with our country. That's what they thought. That's how they viewed those people. And it makes sense. Like These people, they're the ones holding back what we could be. These people are the problem with our country. And Jesus is eating with these people. He's spending time gathering around them, which begs the question then for us, why was it such a big deal that Jesus would eat with sinners? Why was that such a no-no? In order to understand that, you have to understand what eating together meant in the ancient Mediterranean culture, especially the main meal of the day in a public space. If you ate with someone if for the main meal of the day in a public space, what you were basically saying is that you accepted them. You were saying that you accepted them in terms of, of relationships and socially. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's eating with people and sending the signal that he is accepting of them. 
Now, we, we kind of go, really? Is it, well, is it that big a deal? The reason is because mealtime for us today is so different than the way meals were for them. Like when we think of, okay, Jesus was eating a meal with sinners and tax collectors, we picture this, right? We picture like the modern West, you know, Western American family sitting down at a table. Everybody's got their own chair. Everybody's got their own place setting. Table, you know, is there and you know, fork, napkin, plate, Everybody, everything's clean and in its own proper place. That's what we think of when we think like Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. That's not what Jesus was doing. In the ancient Mediterranean, this is what a meal looked like, particularly during Roman times. There would be a table low to the ground, as you can see, and what, there were no chairs. People would literally recline around the table, and in order to support themselves, you would lean against the person next to you. In, in like a, a public meeting, you would, so you're like, your bodies are touching, you're, you're touching uh, the other person next to you while you're eating. And then notice it gets even worse than that. Uh, notice there are no individual plates, napkins, utensils, silverware. They're, the only dishes on the table are the main dishes that held the common food. And so you would eat with your hands. You would di dip together into a large bowl. Some places um, in the world still eat this way where you would take like a piece of softened bread of some kind and you would dip it into the bowl. And so your, your, your hands are together in the same bowl. You're swapping spit. You're double dipping. <laughs> double dipping. Come on. That's what you're doing with the person next to you. And I mean, germaphobes in the room right now should just be like, ah, I can't even hear this anymore. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what he's doing with sinners and tax collectors. Why that matters is because Jesus intentionally used meals as an opportunity to connect with sinners, to accept them. He used meals as a chance to let sinners know that they were loved, that they were cared about, that, that they, it was okay for them to be in his presence. And for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law watching this, this raised some questions. And I would say that this raised some very legitimate questions for the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. These are questions maybe you've asked today, maybe we've asked today. Number one, does accepting them mean that you affirm their life choices? Does accepting them actually mean that you, you've affirmed them and affirmed their life choices? That's a question that they, they would ask. Next, can you actually accept them without affirming? Is that even possible? Can you accept a person? Doesn't that automatically mean that you're affirming their life choices? And then thirdly, doesn't accepting them somehow make you unclean, Jesus? These are legitimate questions. They were very concerned with ritual ceremonial purity. And so there's this idea, as you're like double dipping in the bowl and swapping spit, it's like, doesn't like their uncleanness sort of, you know, contaminate your purity? It's legitimate. In response to these questions, in response to what was happening, Jesus tells three parables, three stories about lost things, things that are lost. And the stories go like this. He says, there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep. One of them is lost. So the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one sheep. But the reason he leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one matters. He doesn't leave the 99 and go in search of the one because he's trying to get back to 100, because 100 really mattered, or because he had a goal to reach 200 sheep and have a, be a flock of 200 sheep. 
The reason he leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one is because zero lost sheep is the goal. That's what the shepherd is after. If it had been two sheep, that it had been two sheep he went to, he'd go in to find. Zero lost sheep is the goal. Then he says, there's a woman who has 10 coins, and one of those coins gets lost. So what the woman does is she goes out and she gets a part-time job, and she begins to work, and eventually she has 15 coins, and then she saves her money, and she gets to 20. No, that's not what he says. He says, when the woman realizes that there's a coin lost, she turns her house upside down. She puts all of her energy into this all-out search until she finds her one lost coin, because zero lost coins was the goal. And then Jesus finishes up by telling maybe his most famous parable. Uh, we know it as the lost son or the prodigal son. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably at some point in your life heard it somewhere because it's, we've heard it so many times in our world. It says there's a father who has two sons, and one of them is lost. And so the father longs for the son to come back home because for the father, what matters is zero lost sons. My wife and I have four boys. If I come home with only three out of four accounted for, and I say, well, that's 75%, right? I mean, that's pretty good odds. I mean, we could always just make another one that looks just like him, right? <laughs> that is unacceptable, right? Anything less than zero lost sons is absolutely unacceptable. Is there anybody lost in your family? Is there anybody lost in your world? Jesus tells these parables to begin to get at why he's accepting sinners, why he's eating with them, why he's doing these things. And so out of this is where we kind of got this idea of our vision statement that we are not done as a church until there are zero lost people. There are zero people living unchanged by Jesus in our world. And so um, what we did is we identified five different zeros. And for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about each one of those zeros every week. Um, but as we talk about, like, why did Jesus accept people? Why did he use mealtimes as an opportunity to accept sinners? What we're talking about today is this idea of zero unconnected in community. It's one of, one of the zeros that we focus on as a church. Zero unconnected in community, what that means is that you can belong before you believe. It means that we understand the gospel in such a way that we are transformed into the image of Jesus more and more from a place of acceptance rather than for a place of acceptance. We become more and more like Jesus from acceptance than we do when we're trying to prove something or attain something of our own strength you know, in order to be accepted. That, that's the idea behind what it means to, to, to go after zero unconnected community. You know what one of my favorite things is? On baptism Sundays, one of my favorite things, and it happened this past, uh, this past hour even, is when somebody will come up to get baptized and their entire small group will come up with them. That is the best to me. I love that. It's like this idea that somebody comes to the church and they, they get plugged into a small group. And as they're a part of this small group, as they belong in community, what begins to happen is they realize, man, I, I'm ready to take this step. I'm ready to go public with my faith. I'm ready to be all in for Jesus. And so they decide to get baptized and their small group comes up around them to support them and be with them. I love that. That's zero unconnected in community. This idea that we can all be accepted. There was no, uh, you know, regulations that Jesus held to in order to be accepted and belong at his table. We can belong before we believe. And in fact, we become more and more like Jesus out of a place of acceptance than when we're trying to attain a place of acceptance. 
And so what I want to do is I just want to spend the next few minutes kind of saying, what was Jesus declaring by accepting lost people at the table? Right? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they've got all these questions. Like, what exactly are you saying here, Jesus? What exactly are you doing? With these three lost parables he tells, there's some things that, there are a couple things that Jesus is declaring by doing this. If you want to write something down, uh, I would write this down. Jesus is declaring the reason a person is lost is not important. The reason a person is lost is not the important thing to focus on. David Livermore, he's a speaker at the Leadership Summit, uh, told this great story about a New Testament scholar who traveled around and uh, taught in different places in the world. And as he would travel around, he began to do a, a research project. And he asked the question, um, talking about Luke 15 in this parable. Go ahead to the next one, if we could. He began to ask the question, why was the lost son in the pig pen? Why was the lost son in the pig pen? So if you know the story of the prodigal son, the, the, uh, the father has two sons. That When the son leaves, he eventually finds himself in a pig pen in a distant land. And for Jewish people, like being with pigs, that, that, that was a symbol of uncleanness. So he was unclean. He was ceremonial unclean. And so this guy would ask, why was the lost son in the pig pen? And he asked people in Russia, people in Africa, and people in America. When he asked the question, people in Russia said, well, it was because of a famine. That's why he was in the pig pen. This situation out of his control swept in, and that's what put him there. When he asked people in Africa, they said it was because no one gave him any food. In other words, it was an injustice issue. No one would actually share their food with him. That's why he ended up in the pig pen. But then whenever he asked Americans, Americans said, well, it was because he squandered what he had. Sounds like us, doesn't it? <laughs> he squandered his money. That's why he was in the pig pen. I want, I want, if you could, just leave that slide up there. I want you to listen. I'm going to read you three verses here from Luke 15. Verse 13 says, A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. So Americans were right, right? He squandered his wealth. That's how he ended up. We think we're right anyway, right? So there you go. We were right. He squandered his wealth. But hold on a minute. Look what it says in the very next verse. Verse 14. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. Okay, so yes, he squandered his money. That's correct. But also, there was this famine this situation that was completely out of his control that swept in, and that together was squandering as well. That actually was part of the situation that put him in the pig pen. But it doesn't end there. Verse 16 says, The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So apparently, yes, he squandered his wealth, like the Americans said. Yes, there was a famine that was out of his control, but also it was a justice issue. No one, the Africans were right too, no one would give him anything. Here's the, the point I'm trying to make. The reasons a person finds themselves lost are complicated. There are lots of reasons people end up lost. And oftentimes those, those situations are multifaceted, they're complicated. We love to debate why someone is lost. We do it all the time. We, in our world, we love to debate, why, how did that person get lost? Why is that person lost exactly? And those, the, we have these endless debates, and that's where we focus our energy. That's where we focus our attention. Well, if they just were wiser with their money, they wouldn't be in that spot. What, hold on. 
were they born that way or, or did they at some point make a decision to be that way? What I want you to see is this. In these three parables Jesus tells, he spends absolutely no time at all telling you how the sheep got lost. He doesn't talk about it at all. He doesn't tell you how the woman lost the coin. How was she so stupid she lost her coin? That's not even the point of the story. He doesn't tell you how the lost son, why the lost son decided to leave. Why did he decide to take his inheritance and go to a distant land? It spends, Jesus spends no time telling you the reasons why the person got lost. The entire focus of the story is how they got found. That's the only point of the story. How a person gets lost, the reasons why a person gets lost are many. There's a million different reasons how people get lost. We're all lost in this room and we're all lost in different ways. We've all gotten there in different ways that have happened, but there is only one way a person gets found, and that is Jesus. That's the one way a person gets found. He is the only true refuge that we can run to. And what happens as we begin to belong at the table of our Heavenly Father because of what Jesus did for us on the cross what happens is we stop focusing so much on how we're lost and why we're lost and what got us there. And we begin to become united around the one way that we all get found. Jesus. Jesus. And that's what God wants for the church. What he's declaring as he accepts lost people at the table is that a reason a person is lost is not important. The other thing he's declaring is that the joy of the Father is all important. The only thing that matters in these stories, the point that Jesus is almost obnoxiously driving home, is the joy of the Father. The, the joy that the Father has in the story. Verse 5 says, talking about the shepherd and the sheep, it says, when he has found it, the shepherd finds the sheep, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. What I love about that statement is the shepherd is the one who does all the work to carry the sheep home. The shepherd, when he finds that one lost sheep, he picks that, that sheep up, puts it on his shoulders, and with great joy in his heart, he, he carries that sheep home. That's not what I would do if I was a shepherd. If I was a shepherd and I, I had to leave the 99 and go look for that one, I would use my shepherd's staff. You know what I'm saying? I'd be like, get back over there. What is the matter with you? And I would make that sheep run back. <laughs> that's not the father's, the, the, for the shepherd, the shepherd goes, and he's the one that does, it's the shepherd's work to rescue the sheep. The sheep doesn't do anything to rescue itself. In fact, nothing in that story does anything to rescue itself. Even the son, when he's coming home, is greeted by the father running out to get him. Nobody rescues themselves in the story. It's the shepherd, it's the father, it's his work that rescues a person. And it's, and it's his great joy to do that. We don't do anything to fix ourselves. We don't do anything to put ourselves back together. It's the shepherd's work to rescue the sheep. In a later passage, Jesus says, I am the great shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's his work that brings the joy to the Father. Luke 15, 7 says this, and at the end of each one of these lost parables, the same line appears 
says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have not strayed away. I love faithfully worshiping God. Faithfully worshiping is God. I wish that every single one of us would get to this place where we come in just hungry for the presence of God, hungry to worship him together. That's not where God's greatest joy comes from. I love studying the scriptures. I love studying deep theology and understanding the things of God. I wish all of us would just want and hunger for the scriptures more and more, hunger to understand theology, hunger to understand who God is more and more and more. It's not where God's greatest joy comes from. Giving is awesome. Serving the poor is awesome. I hope we are always a church where everyone is giving, everyone is serving the poor. It's not where God's greatest joy comes from. The Father's greatest joy comes from when even just one of us repents. We stop trying to do it on our own, trying to try harder and be better. The Pharisees' message, just try harder to be good, try harder. When just one of us comes to this place where we realize, I can't fix it, I can't make myself better, and we run to the person of Jesus. We let him pick us up, put us around his shoulders, and we allow him to rescue us, to take us home. When just one person does that, all of heaven erupts in this huge celebration. The joy of the Father is the most important thing for us to focus on. It's the highest thing we can give our attention, give our time to. That's how he feels about you. That's how he feels about your neighbor, that person in your family who right now is just breaking everybody's heart. That's how he feels. That's, that's what he's after. So baptism is actually this celebration of that. One of the people who was getting baptized uh, this weekend emailed us and let us, they said, um, hey, uh, would it be okay if like a whole bunch of my family and friends came up actually with me while I got baptized? Yes, absolutely, that's okay. We were like, yes, please do that. That's the whole point. What could be better than having a whole bunch of people come up here and join with heaven in this huge celebration that somebody has been redeemed. Somebody's been lost and, they've, and now they've been found. They were dead and now they've been made alive again. What could be better than that? Baptism is this beautiful celebration of what the Father's joy is all about. Uh, in fact, it's called a sacrament. The word sacrament means mystery. It's this mysterious symbol uh, that we interact with when we choose to follow Jesus with our whole lives. Romans 6 says we're buried with Christ in baptism or raised to new life with him. So it's this idea that when we go down in the water, what's, what we're saying is I'm dying to my old life. I'm dying to trying harder to do it myself, to my own ability to fix myself. And just like Jesus died and was, and was buried, we die to our old life. We die to our own effort trying to fix ourselves. And just like Jesus was raised to a new life, when we come out of the water, we're saying, I am in Christ. I am a new life. I, I, am, I have eternal life in him that's going to go on forever. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to move into a time of celebrating baptism. We're going we're gonna to celebrate right now. We're going to join heaven in this celebration and so the band's going to come out uh, here in a minute. And I just want you to sit and ask the question, where am I in these stories? Where am I?
Where is my life right now as it relates to Jesus? As it relates to me trying to fix myself, solve my own problems. The band's going to sing a song, and I don't want you to, to stand and sing. You can sing along if you want, but I just want you to spend some time with God. Let these words wash over you. Let him speak to you. And while we're singing, if you're ready to get baptized this morning, we would love for you to come over and join us right over here. I'm going to be over here. Chris Locker, David, we're all just going to hang out over here. And um, some of you already let us know you're ready to get baptized. But maybe there's some of you in this room. Maybe you didn't sign up. Maybe you, you uh, didn't take the step to let us know. But you came this morning. You're in this room right now. And I don't believe anybody's in this room right now by accident. And maybe you know. It's time for me to take that step. I, I need to trust Jesus with my life. I can't fix it myself. I'm not a self-rescuing sheep. It doesn't work that way. I've tried it. Trust me. And maybe you're at this point where you're ready to say, man, I, I'm all in. I'm all in. I want to challenge you to make a bold move. And I want to challenge you as this song is played to come over here and join us over on this side of the room in this area and get baptized. We have t-shirts and towels, everything here for you, for exactly for that. Because following Jesus is more important than having a dry change of clothes. Following Jesus is more into eternity and to the life that he has for you is more important than looking silly and getting wet in front of a bunch of people. It's what God's called us to. Close with this. One of my most favorite baptism moments in the history of Frontline happened a few years ago. There's a guy and his family coming to our church, uh, and he at one time had been a pastor, like me, in ministry. But he had a really rough story where um, he'd blown it all up, to be honest with you. Just sinful decisions, shame had just entered in, and it had cost him his job, it had cost him his seat at the ministry table, he lost his ministry credentials, and he almost lost his family. And he just was crushed by this. So full of, of sin and shame. And so he, his family began attending during that season of their lives. Not really because he wanted to be there here or that they as a couple wanted to be here, but because of their kids. They just felt like, well, you know, yeah, this is all happening. We don't want it to affect our kids. So they were coming basically to bring their kids with them to church. And their oldest daughter had decided to get baptized. She's 12 years old, and so I remember the day came for her to get baptized, and so she came up in the, in the moment, and she got in the tank, and I, I'll never forget, as, as we were about to baptize her, I looked over, and he was literally like right there, like three rows back, right there. I remember seeing him just standing there kind of in the dark, just like standing back like this, like head down. And in that moment, it wasn't like an audible voice or anything, but I just felt the Holy Spirit say, invite him up. Just invite him up. And so I looked at him and I, I pointed and I went. And he kind of looks around for a minute. I'm like. And finally he goes, me? And then he came up. And he got on this side of his daughter and I got on this side. And then he baptized his daughter. And the most powerful part of that moment for me, the moment that sticks in my head, is right after the service was over, he came up to me, and the line he said, he said, thank you. I thought I had forfeited my chance to do that. 
statement has been working on me this week as I've thought about you. I wonder how many of you, I wonder if he's not the only one who's had that thought. I wonder if some of you, the main question is, do you feel like you forfeited your seat at the table? Do you feel like you've forfeited your seat at your heavenly father's table? You know who you are. You come, you're here on Sundays, but you don't think you belong up here. You wouldn't dare get involved. You blew that chance. You're coming for your kids. You're going to check your kids into the block. You're going to have them a part of things because you, that's important. You want that for them, but there's a party that's like, my best days are behind me. I, I messed that up. God sent me to tell you something this morning. He wants you to know that Jesus' death on the cross was every bit as much for you as it was for me, as it was for that guy, as it is for any of us in this room. And you are not here in this room by accident. Run to the refuge of Jesus. He's already done the work. It's already his work. He did it for you. There's nothing for you to prove. There's only something for you to let go of and gain. Run to him. Who is stopping you from taking your rightful seat at your father's table as a son, as a daughter of God? Who? Seriously, who's stopping you? Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. The only person stopping you this morning is you. So I want to challenge you. If you're ready, take the bold move and come join us.